Welcome to the Nova Podcast. Welcome to the Nova Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Counts. This is episode two of the pre-concert lecture series. Program two, our website tells you, includes rowdy energy and a hint of mystery. It also includes six separate pieces, so I think we should dive right in. First up is The Jet Whistle of Hector Villalobos. This was written in 1950 when Villalobos was in New York, but he was very much Brazilian. He was born there in 1887, and by the time he reached maturity as an artist, he could easily be called a composer, a conductor, a cellist, a guitarist. He was a man for all seasons, certainly. He, like many composers, particularly from the Eastern European tradition, went into the field to learn about the folk music of his home country. And the music he brought back to the cities was not initially well-received by his countrymen. It took Paris to validate him at home. He went there and rubbed elbows with Stravinsky and Ravel and Prokofiev and others, and that was the thing that finally made people trust his voice. His voice was very unique, his voice was very national, his voice was very much a part of his culture. And when we hear him in this really fascinating duet for flute and cello, Jet Whistle, many years later, we hear him at the height of his maturity as an artist, as a person, as a representative of his culture. This music is not Brazilian per se, but it certainly has a lot of the charm and wit that he brought to his music throughout his career. The title comes from a technique that he asks the flute player to employ in the third movement. And essentially, the flute player covers the mouthpiece with their mouth and blows air quickly through the instrument, creating these whistly glissandi that Villalobos thought reminded him of a jet airplane taking off. It's an interesting effect, and it's a really fascinating sound world that he creates with this music. I'm particularly drawn to how the two instruments play off each other. You wouldn't normally think of a cello and a flute as a reasonably appropriate duet, but in this case, it works wonderfully. And the way they switch guys from accompaniment to melodic is fascinating not only to hear, but to watch. This performance is going to be just as great for your eyes as it will be for your ears. We move next to the music of Gabriela Lina Frank. This, from 2010, her string quartet, Milagros, or Miracles. Gabriela, a person of mixed Peruvian and Chinese ancestry, and according to her own bio, she always considered identity to be at the center of her being and her music. And this piece is very much about that identity. It's about her roots, her mother's roots in particular, in Peru. I'll also mention that Frank was influenced by Bartok and Hinastera, particularly how they viewed folk music and the music of their countries, a lot like Villalobos that we just talked about. In fact, Gabriela considered herself as much a musical anthropologist as a composer. And those studies, that immersion into the indigenous sounds of the places that she's traveled, really play a big part in her voice as an artist. This piece, as I mentioned, is very much a piece about Peru. It's very much a piece about her travels there, but also a tribute to her mother's heritage. I'm going to read to you now from 
Her description of each of these eight little character studies in this work, Miracles. And I hope you'll forgive me if I go straight to the English translations for ease. The first of these little miracles is Shrine by the Road, and this movement pays homage to the ubiquitous tiny Catholic shrines erected along the highways throughout the highlands in Peru, silently honoring those that have been killed in roadside accidents. Number two is Broken Panpipes. This movement depicts the ceramic panpipes found at the Cahuachi Temple that were ritualistically broken by a fiery pre-Inca civilization known as the Nazca. They lived from 200 BC to 500 AD. Movement three, women singing. It really does say it all. This is inspired by the sound of indigenous women in song. Movement four is the dance of the Tingo Maria meant to give us the impression of an impenetrable jungle in the lively and cacophonous border town nearby. Pizzicati and the strings are inspired by the water drums you might hear in this place. Movement 5, Shadows of the Amantani, the remarkable starry nights of this barren island in Lake Titicaca between Peru and Bolivia made for eerie shadows that Gabriella could not dodge on her nocturnal walks. Number six, goodbye to Turin. Turin is a small city on the side of a mountain with seemingly little horizontal ground famous for its healing bathwaters. Gabriella visited there during a time when it was on the verge of becoming a ghost town as its youth migrated in droves to the urban cities. Number seven, Dance of the Dolls. It's inspired by the brightly colored, almost mannequin-like dolls from the colonial era. And number eight, Chapel of the Camino. Gabriella here says... Throughout my travels over the years, these chapel sightings have been constant and unyielding, as I suspect they always will be as I continue to travel in the future. Next on the program is music by Utah-based composer Neil Thornock. Thornock is an associate professor at BYU. He considers himself a performer-slash-composer in that the two things are never separate. And his performing life as an organist and a carillon player inform almost every note he writes for those and any other instruments. He's been published a lot in those two worlds, the organ world and the carillon world. But this piece that we'll hear on this program, Blur, is a percussion duo. Neil and I shared a few emails back and forth about this work, and he had the following to say about it. Much of the piece consists of two players playing the same thing on different instruments with different timings. It's kind of like the effect you get when two people read the same text at the same time without really caring about matching up. In fact, they're not allowed to match up in this work. Thornock forbids it. They play often the same thing starting at the same time, but they're encouraged to play them in different ways and at different tempi so that what should be clear becomes blurred over the course of the piece. I find it interesting that he likens it to something he's going through personally and physically. It might be like my astigmatism. No matter how hard I try to focus, he says, an image will never be entirely in focus. So the idea of this blurring is not only of words, not only of music, but also of meaning for him. And I love this quote. In fact, I included it in the program notes. It's like when two people have largely the same point to make but end up arguing with each other anyhow. We move next to the music of another Utah-based composer, this time Devin Maxwell, a professor at the University of Utah. 
Devin calls himself a composer, percussionist, and also, interestingly, a music technology entrepreneur. And he's got the resume to back that up. He has founded and co-founded many organizations, including one called Loud Louder Loudest. It's a music production company that was based in Brooklyn for a time. And his non-classical life centers on explorations in wireless music and mobile game sound. He's really had a very interesting career, and I encourage everyone to check out his website and read about it. This piece, though, has a story that's incredible all its own. Get along, little doggies. It is exactly what you think it is. It's based on the Roy Rogers song from 1940, from the film West of the Badlands. And the reason it's important to Maxwell is because he had been listening to the song quite a bit on YouTube. And when his kids were little, he sang it to them. It was a bedtime song, particularly for his son. So the fact that this song was such a big part of the fabric of their family caused Maxwell to do some further web exploration. We've all fallen down these YouTube rabbit holes where one thing leads to another. And he recalls a day where he was listening to different versions of Get Along Little Dogies, and he lit upon the Woody Guthrie version. And there was something about it that really struck him. And I'll read from an email that he sent me about it. When I first heard the Guthrie version, he writes, I was struck by how long he held out the words along and none. They seem to last forever. Something about the way he sings it also seems to ring to me. So I decided to write a piece using a sample from the Guthrie tune, amplifying his idea of holding out these words even longer than he did using artificial means. I also wanted to explore the idea of these ringing chords So the work is based on the harmonic series of the chords that he uses in the song. Maxwell also told me that he believes that his music is basically all about resonance and relationships. Resonance in this case because it's personal for him. This is a song that he'd been singing to his kids for years. And relationships because he wrote this piece specifically for his son, who now is much older and of course not particularly interested in being sung to sleep, But Maxwell believes that the timelessness of this melody is something that will be intrinsic to his son forever. Though this is not a premiere of Get Along Little Doggies, it's pretty close. This is only the second time this music will have been heard in public. Let's move now back in time a ways, back to the late 1960s, 1968 to be exact. Composer Alfred Schnitke wrote his Serenade for Five Instruments then, and it is the quintessential example of polystylism. What does that mean, polystylism? Well, first we have to talk about how Schnitke got there himself. Born in 1934, he was originally influenced by Shostakovich. There was a powerful Shostakovich strain in his early works, but he eventually came to this place of polystylism, and in fact, wrote an article in 1971 about it that in many ways put his stamp on the concept for all time. Polystylism is the use of multiple styles and techniques. It's something that could be found not just in music, but also in art, in film, in architecture. Another word for it might be eclecticism. Think about James Joyce and the way he writes all of the different voices and competing styles that occur in his work. But it is also easy to see this, maybe easiest to see this in architecture. I'm thinking of Gaudi's still incomplete Sagrada Familia Basilica in Barcelona. You have to press pause right now and Google this to see this building if you haven't seen it yet. 
it's a mix of gothic and eastern and natural influences and it is strange and wonderful it is an incredible thing to see and it's a perfect example of this eclecticism or this polystylism that schnitka's music embodies as i mentioned the serenade is perfect as an example it includes little bits of his own film scores music from rimsky korsakov music from tchaikovsky music from beethoven it's a bit of a strange ensemble he uses here, violin, clarinet, bass, piano, percussion, but such a unique collection of influences deserved an equally unique collection of instruments to bring it about. We end our exploration of the rowdy, mysterious energy of love with Ravel. Maurice Ravel was hired in 1905 by the Erard Company to write a work that prominently featured their traditional pedal harp. Before we talk about that instrument, though, in this piece, we have to talk about where Ravel was in his career. He was in competition with Debussy. It wasn't a competition that he chose or maybe would even have acknowledged, but there's no doubt that there was, at least in the music world at the time, constant comparison going on between the two of them. I think of this as something akin to the War of the Romantics in the 19th century between Brahms and Wagner. It's not something the artists themselves started or certainly nurtured. It was their fans, really, that kept it going. In the case of Debussy and Ravel, however, in the early part of the 20th century, it resulted in competing commissions occasionally. Debussy, one year prior to the Erard Company's commission of, of Ravel, had been hired to write a piece for the Playel Company and their fancy chromatic harp. This is the dance's sacred and profane. So Ravel's work, the introduction Allegro that we end this concert with, was in direct competition. It was a direct response to that piece of Debussy's. Let's talk for a second about these two harps because it's interesting and it's important. The pedal harp is the harp that you see in orchestras today. This is the modern harp that almost all professionals play. The chromatic harp didn't have pedals or levers, though. It's sometimes called a cross-strung harp because it had two rows of strings that intersected without touching that allowed the chromatic notes to be played without having to deploy any sort of mechanism. It's not an instrument that gets played very often today. It's more of a historical curiosity, and if you want, there are several very dry but very interesting treatises on the difference between these instruments online. If you're interested in learning more, I advise you to go take a look at YouTube. Ravel, for his part, was given the pedal harp, and he asked things of it that no composer had done before. He was one of the first to really fully explore its melodic capabilities. The result, the introduction in Allegro, is absolutely gorgeous. Quick web searches will show that it is part of the favorite piece lists of many people. Interesting, though, that it wasn't necessarily a favorite of Ravel. His own autobiography and list of works compiled by himself left it out, and no one is really sure why. And the fact that he recorded the piece later in 1923, it was one of the few pieces he recorded, makes you wonder what he actually did think of it. He was famously critical of his own work. He, he didn't like Bolero, didn't understand why it was so popular. This work, though, is something quite a bit different. 
Like Bolero, it was meant to be a proof of concept, the exploration of an idea, in this case, the idea of the harp, the pedal harp, as a solo instrument. But the result is something altogether beautiful, altogether fetching, and unforgettable. When you hear it in performance, just those first notes, you'll know exactly what I mean. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of the works on this program, and I can't wait to talk to you again on the next Nova Podcast episode. Until then, I'm Jeff Counts. Enjoy the concert. NOVA has received generous support from the Utah Legislature and Utah Division of Arts and Museums, the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation, Salt Lake County Zoo Arts and Parks, George S. and Dolores Story Eccles Foundation, Isotope, Salt Lake City Arts Council, the Cultural Vision Fund, Dominion Energy, Rocky Mountain Power Foundation, the Alice M. Ditson Fund of Columbia University, and the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music. Don't forget to subscribe and share the NOVA podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening.